My people, my people, my people. This time, my people, season five of Black History Year has arrived. I'm Jay from Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit media group for black folks. And we're here to bring you the history that you didn't get in school. Now, check it out. For four seasons, we've reclaimed the history that was hidden from us, challenged the systems that were built to oppress us. And we've asked those critical questions that can push us towards black liberation. In season five, those conversations can't stop, won't stop, as we continue looking to the past and using the tools of our ancestors to build liberated futures, like today's guest. Coming up, we're sitting down with a black political activist some cite as controversial, others as radical. Either way, he's someone whose mission is to build black liberation, to educate and shift black consciousness towards a direction of love, self-respect, and freedom. But first, ahead of this interview about what we deserve and the political actions we must take to confront an anti-black system, we'll hear the story of an abolitionist, freedom fighter, artist whose life ended too soon, but whose fight for our community, our culture, lives on. October 31st, 1993, Halloween. The homecoming concert at Clark Atlanta University was hot. College students, alumni, locals, and even fans who drove hours from out of town converged. No one dared miss KRS-One, Biz Markey, or the living legend Tupac Shakur perform. As the early morning came, Tupac headed back to his hotel, riding passenger side. But the events of the night had only begun and would take a hellish turn. He looked out of his window to see two white men harassing a black driver. They were white men armed with guns. It would have been easy to keep riding by, to drive away and ignore the assault, to mind his own business. That wasn't an option for Tupac. He understood that his business is our business. So he stepped out of the car, gun ready to defend his people. Witnesses say the white men fired first and missed. Tupac, however, didn't. He shot one in the stomach and the other in the behind, and the black driver left with his life. Only later would Tupac learn these white men were off-duty cops. Tupac was arrested and charged with aggravated assault, all because he practiced self-defense. Unlike so many, this story isn't over. Months later, his trial revealed the white cops were intoxicated and Shakur walked free. Tupac Shakur never backed down from challenging the system, whether through his music or through his activist actions. Living in white supremacy is killing us. So like this icon, we have to protect each other too and do it by any means necessary. Up next, Jay sits down with Hawk Newsom. 
Hawk is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York and a servant of the community. In only a few years, his organization has passed seven pieces of legislation and is tirelessly working to make the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act become law. This Bronx-made activist has hit the pavement for our people, going into communities to serve what's needed locally and nationally. He's someone who's unafraid and unapologetic in confronting white supremacists, especially those who hold office and hold more power than they should in our communities. He's doing whatever it takes to combat white tyranny and protect the community. Hulk, what does Black liberation look like to you? Black liberation to me is an existence for our people without the constraints of oppression. If you think about oppression, what it symbolizes in our community, it's like having a boot on your neck or someone's hands around your neck. And we literally, we can't breathe. So Black liberation to me looks like communities where we thrive, where we live together, where we do business together, where there aren't any government obstacles. When I say government obstacles, I'm talking about poor failing education systems. I'm talking about denial of banking loans. I'm talking about an unjust and, you know, judicial system. There's, there's just so much there that we need removed. And the only way that we can have black liberation is through unity, is if we all act as unifiers. I appreciate that. So in what ways have you seen elements of that modeled in your life? I think it was my dad, man. Um, my parents met at a, a civil rights rally uh, at a school walkout. They fought to have Black history taught in their curriculum in high school. And when they implemented it, they gave the teacher the job to a white teacher. So my dad let her walk out. And um, just growing up in a real pro-black household where my my parents gave me the realities of life. They didn't whitewash anything. They didn't give me this Disney-like approach to the world. So uh, outside of my house, my dad was a community leader, not in the way that you think like, most would think like getting people to the to the ballots to vote for a candidate or things like that. No, my dad saw a lot of kids outside playing on a really hot day and he'd take us all about a mile and a half away to a pool and we'll walk as a whole community, as a whole block, and he'd take all the kids swimming. That's what community looks like to me. Community looks like us taking control of our own destinies. We cannot wait for the mayors and the politicians. They will never fix them. The violence in our community has been ever present. The failing schools, ever present. All of these elements have never been fixed. And the only logical conclusion to come to is that this system is happy with us living like that. So we have to build a strong community where we go out and solve these problems ourselves. I hear that, man. So you mentioned the story of how your parents met under activist, student activist circumstances. You also mentioned that your father was a model in seeing him taking certain actions. So describe for us a bit more, you know, what brought you to this work? It's, it's funny because I was rebellious, right? 
So I, I dropped out of high school. I was, you know, drinking, smoking, hanging out. And um, I only went back to, to school to play basketball. It's, it's because everybody that I was playing against were going off to these big schools and then going to the NBA. But um, God saw fit to put me on the right path. Throughout college, um, I wasn't conscious, you know? I, I had the knowledge, but all I cared about was myself. I was a very selfish individual. I cared about me and having fun and getting to the NBA. But there were glimpses where I saw uh, racism and I confronted them in college, which led to some trouble. I was always cool with my coaches until I spoke out against racism in the team. Uh, once I left college, you know, I went to work for the Bronx District Attorney's Office. That's when my conscience started grabbing hold of me. That's when the real pro-black message and, you know, my dad, the community leader, my mother used to run with Panthers. That's when everything really started weighing heavy on me because I'm sitting in the Bronx District Attorney's office and I'm hearing the way these people talk about us. That's when everything really started weighing heavy on me because I'm sitting in the Bronx District Attorney's office and I'm hearing the way these people talk about us, right? So these people are my colleagues all day when I'm in a shirt and tie. I live two blocks from the courthouse. I get off work and put on a hood and I walk past my coworkers and scare them, right? I take off my hood and I say, what's up? They'd be afraid of me. These are the people prosecuting crime in the Bronx. So it was there that I learned that the prosecutors and the police are on the same side. Uh, so I couldn't work there anymore. Once I was in law school, I was like, okay, I was still a capitalist, bro. Jay, I'm serious. I was a capitalist. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to come out, make a lot of money in business and have fun with my life. Constitutional law really grabbed hold of me. It was there. I realized that most of the advancements for our people came by way of legislature. And the year after I graduated from law school, I was running for office. I was running for city council. But by that time, I was radicalized. And I was speaking like a Black Panther more so than I was speaking like a politician. People didn't vote for me. <laughs> they voted for the person who gave them free turkeys and left them to suffer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a journey. The night that changed my life forever was December 3rd. Uh, I think it was 2014. Uh, yeah, December 3rd, 2014. It was the, I would never forget, I was hanging out with a friend and I told her, yo, if they let this cop go, they kill Eric Garner, I'm taken to the streets. When I tell you I marched for 30 days straight, we were just shutting down traffic, shutting down New York City for 30 days straight. That was followed by a march to Washington, D.C. And I've been in these streets ever since. You know, I graduated from law school. I never practiced law a day in my life. I took the bar exam a couple of times early, but it's just not who I'm supposed to be right now. I'm supposed to be out here fighting for liberation of black people and um, not sitting in some office practicing law. With your training in that area, in what ways do you use that in the work that you do, uh, despite not officially practicing law, you know, in an office. The funny thing is having a, a law degree 
gives me the ability to know what I am talking about when I'm making demands on legislation, when I'm making demands on these these police officers to have them charged appropriately. A great story is Deborah Danner, a schizophrenic 66 black woman who was shot to death in her house. Four out of the five officers in that apartment said that they would not have shot this woman. And this one sergeant, Hugh Barry, shot her. The Bronx District Attorney refused to fight. Well, first we went to the Attorney General's office because we knew through legislation, the Attorney General's office had the ability to prosecute this cop. The Attorney General didn't want to fumble this and lose the black vote, so he punted it to the Bronx District Attorney. We stood outside in front of her office for three months in the winter in New York. We're talking about eight, nine degrees. Some days it was below zero. But we sat there and we said the same things. We want him charged with murder. We want him charged with manslaughter and and really read the elements of the law. And after we pressured them, they indicted this cop. And at the press conference, the prosecutor used the same language that I was using outside in front of that courthouse, in front of their office. My ability to argue allows me to demolish white supremacists and their logic. And my knowledge of the uh, law gives me um, uh, an insight into how to properly make demands on this system when we're fighting for things. Mm, mm. Currently, what type of demands are you and the organization making? Uh, There's one piece of legislation that we are dead set on. Just to to preface this, in the last uh, six years, we've passed seven pieces of legislation. Well, right. Yeah. And that's us directly. And and we don't lobby. We don't go up to Albany, our state's capital and, and beg people to do the right thing. We play a pressure game. We negotiate with these politicians and lawmakers and we get our things passed. Uh, the thing that we're really focused on now is called the Blue Wall Bill. Many of you are familiar with the Blue Wall of Silence. It's like the police is no snitch code. They don't tell on each other. They don't arrest each other. Police officers and, and law enforcement in general are more efficient than the mafia or than any street tribe you will find. They do not snitch on each other. And when they do snitch on each other, they are punished, right? So what we're proposing is a piece of legislation that says, if you lie on a report, if you falsify this government document, you will be facing a felony. That means if the officers who are around when George Floyd was choked to death falsified the, the, the police report and said George Floyd was doing something that he obviously was not doing, they'd be looking at another charge, which is, you know, that felony that we're proposing. That's something that is really important to us. Um, we have a whole list of our legislative agenda, but I'll be perfectly honest with you. We are more focused on right now going into our communities and teaching our people what this oppression is, teaching our people how to eat, teaching them how to meditate and do yoga, teaching them about financial literacy. So we've been very much top down, you know, and we did a little bit of the the the, the on boots on the ground work but we're switching that dynamic to where we're focusing most of our attention on being in the community and helping our people. We think that that's the most effective way to get liberation for our people. Let's dig more into that. Um, It seems that you're describing a transition in terms of focusing on 
uh, the needs of the community more so than legislative aspects. Talk more about what that looks like on an ongoing basis to engage the community and what are the outcomes that you are hoping to see from those efforts in the community? Well, the name of our new organization, which was founded a month after the death of George Floyd, is Black Opportunities, a.k.a. the Black Ops. With Black Ops, our team can build a national organization that is real, authentic, and true to our people. We look at the violence that is plaguing our community, and we understand that the true cause of crime is poverty, that the police and the government are not going to stop the violence in our community. So we're de-escalate situations, and we're encouraging people to walk through their communities and spread love to these to the to the young boys, you know what I'm saying? To the to, to the young sisters out there. You know, we create a school in the Bronx. It's the only true Montessori school in the Bronx. We have about 40 students. And we teach them every day. Um, it's a it's a culturally appropriate education. So, you know, for exercise, our kids are doing the electric slide. <laughs> uh, we have, yeah, it's cool, man. Um, our kids are, are meditating. I go in and meditate with them sometimes. They are learning math through using beads. It's, it's an indigenous form of teaching. So it's let's talk about uh, your real enemy being these schools which are failing to educate you properly. These banks who won't give you the same loans that they'll give a white person in similar circumstances to you so that you can start a business and elevate yourself. That's your enemy. Your enemy ain't the, the brother from two blocks away keeping their foot on your neck. A lot of people will be like, get out of my face. That's cool. But a lot of listen. And just seeing black folks walking through a community, mobbing through the community oh, on, on a positive note might change the, the, the atmosphere, the dynamic. So it's both uh, internal focus in terms of community empowerment, community development, and it's external in terms of these broader systemic issues such as uh, poverty and jobs and, and what leads to that. Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. When we decide to come into these streets, it's organized. It's succinct. It'll be controlled. The demands will be controlled. The, the most effective organizer of Black people is the Democratic Party. Those white folks who control our politics are the best organizer um, uh, of people. And it's, it's, it's truly sad. What we're dedicated to is building something that'll span across 50 states. Everybody's the same knowledge. Everybody's on the same page. We're meeting the needs of our community that way. I'm hoping to see that, you know, spread around the country. Those are the type of efforts that I think all of our communities could benefit from in terms of the Democratic Party being the best organizer of our people. We're a community that provides for and takes care of each other. We are tough. We are resilient. We are wolves. We are not sheep. However, we are being led by, in essence, the Democratic Party and the, their contributors and the people who call those shots, those political shots. And Democrats only care about Black lives when it's election time, right? The attention around police shootings and, 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 and miscarriages of justice are heightened 
around the times of elections. So when Hillary and Trump were 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 going head to head, it was Black Lives Matter this, Black Lives Matter that. Now the only time you hear about Black Lives Matter in the press is something negative. So what we have to do is as as a people is point out these patterns to the everyday public. We have to show them that. But more importantly, these politicians that we elect, there's a lot of black faces and white supremacy, and a lot of them don't even know it. And uh, these politicians that we elect that don't do right by our communities, they shouldn't be allowed to walk through our hoods, right? I'm not saying that they should be harmed. You make them real uncomfortable. They have to be uncomfortable when they do us wrong. OK, if, if, if they're giving speeches, then you show up with a bullhorn at that speech and you let everybody in the community know that they're selling you out. We must apply legal pressure to these people so that they are very uncomfortable. And most importantly, we have to show the public that are there to support them at their, their events that they are not doing what they need to do. That's the cross we carry. We'll be out front saying these things and doing these things and, and taking that initial hit because somebody has to. We get scrutiny from the government, we get scrutiny from the media, but that's the right. Your point around the media, this uh, this idea that these police shootings and lives hiding around election years, I'm glad you said that. I've looked at Google Trends, for example, and anybody can do this, type in the term police brutality in the Google Trends, and you can see clear spikes around when it's even searched for, and that you, you can connect that to election years post-Obama, right? I don't think they were worried about Black folks voting when Obama was there, but the numbers also show that Black engagement electoral politics declined post-Obama. So how else are we going to get Black folks engaged and excited about what they're offering. And that seems to me to also be, let's bring in this element of police brutality, even though it doesn't go anywhere on the off season when elections are not taking place, it's still there, but it's just not as talked about in the media. I think oftentimes our emotions are being used and manipulated and often makes us sort of cannon fodder for the agendas of other folks. Absolutely. So how receptive have folks been to pointing out some of these these contradictions and showing alternative ways of looking at both the system and the solution to the challenges? It's all about a person's palate, right? To some people, the truth about white supremacy and the oppression of Black people in America tastes sweet. To some people, it's a, it's a tough swell pill to swallow, you know? We have this world that we live in where people are all for the truth unless it makes them uncomfortable, unless you're pointing out how they are part of the problem. So a perfect example, Democrats aren't supposed to be listening. It seems they are on board until until a certain point, right? I think allyship is valuable and at a certain point, it's just not sustainable. And I, I believe the idea of Blacks truly being anything other than a servant class and truly practicing self-determination on our own terms um, and the ways that that is expressed and demanded. It's cool when we're fighting for rights and equality, but when we want to like do something you know, outside of that scope, 
they're off, off and off the bandwagon with that. Yeah, they, there is a place for allies, you know. Um, allies have helped us get computers to our community. They, our, our allies have helped us. But um, I think for a black organization to be effective, it has to be black led and they can't there can't be any white people pulling strings, you know, like anybody who gives us funding knows that we're going to be us. And it ain't a damn thing you could tell us about it. Like we are going to be black warriors on the front lines, acting and behaving as such. If you want to help us, fine. But no one will pick up a phone call and say, you know, pick up a phone and say, Shivana, which is my sister, our co-founder, and say, Shivana, you guys can't say that. Get out of here. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it don't work like that over here. But um, not everybody has that luxury. So for folks that are listening to this episode down with what you're talking about in terms of the community building, community serving aspect of it, how can they help spread these programs to their communities if it doesn't already exist in their communities? People want to work with us. I really appreciate it. Um, what we're offering is information and we're, we're giving you just ways to help yourself. So we're gearing up right now and beginning in May is when we'll be putting a lot of this information out on our website. And uh, you come, you sign up to receive the information. Uh, I'd encourage people to buy one of the sweatsuits or, or, or you know what I mean, buy a t-shirt because that's how we support ourselves. That's how we feed people in our communities. But um, come out and rock with us. But I'm telling you, if you come into my page, be prepared to fight because there's it's some intense things happening and folks is confronting a lot of things. And it is super duper duper pro-black, you know, you got, you got, you got a lot of foundational black Americans. You got a lot of uh, brothers and sisters from across the world on there and they are unapologetic. In terms of this broad question, can voting be a tool for collective mobilization or are there other strategies? I think that throughout this conversation, you've shared a number of community strategies and solutions. I'm interested just broadly in how you see voting as playing a part or no part in a liberation strategy. Every community has understood, have understood the importance of funding, financing, and voting for a candidate. But at the end of the day, they get that candidate on the phone and they say, hey, we got a problem. You need to get down here and do something about it or or we're taking our resources away from you. Black people have not done that. Part of the reason is because we are not unified. Perfect example of this is our, our former governor, New York, Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo held weekly meetings with Jewish community leaders. And when it was a time for him to meet with black people, he'd send one of his assistants to have that conversation. Zero respect. They had no respect for us. So if you are not going to force these politicians to pay attention to your needs, then you might as well just stay home. You might as well not vote. Right. And um, if you're going to follow up, make sure they do what they need to do, then that's how you make sure you're taken care of. And if you say something like we said, I ain't voting until Black Lives Matter, that means either you commit to our agenda or we are not voting for you. And that's that's super important. That's a that's a power play right there, because without us, the Democrats 
cease to exist. Republicans don't need our votes, right? The Democrats do. Republicans don't care about our issues because they don't have to. Uh, Democrats have to appear as though they they care about us. So our best shot is with that particular party until we, you know, opt to, to create our own party. Final thoughts in terms of accountability and holding officials accountable. I think it's clear that folks with money can, at the very least, have a, a different type of conversation with someone in their office. But for the average person that, you know, you're speaking to on a daily basis and the just person that's listening to this podcast right now that may not be able to do that is likely not able to do that. In what ways can we either individually or collectively um, apply the pressure needed to hold officials accountable in different ways? got to organize. Uh, in order to hold these elected officials accountable, we have to organize. I wasn't mentored by some politician. I didn't kiss behinds at this organization. No, I built in the streets, right? And that came from organizing, from doing some, some stuff that you might think is uncool, like standing on a corner, handing out flyers, inviting people to a meeting. Um, instead of going out and saying, hey, I want to uh, organize, right? I want to mobilize. Go get your friends together. Get some money. Go to a Sam's Club or Costco. Get you a little bit of groceries, right? And stand on the corner. And if you've got food, people are going to come to you. Before they get that food, you give them a flyer explaining to them what the issues are. Right. You get their phone number, their email, their social media handles on a list. You invite people into the fight. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. And this podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit media group for black folks. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It also lets us know that you value our work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, but really everything makes a difference. I appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Albany Jones, Zane Murdoch, and Tasha Taylor. Producing the podcast, we have Marcel Hutchins and Sydney Smith, who also edits the show. Joanna Samuels is our audio engineer, and Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker.